Welcome back, Brown Girls. It's Ashanti, the host of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics. If you want to hear about a trailblazer who's killing it at the polls, using her voice to speak up for the community she loves, and having so much fun doing it, look no further than today's guest. Council member Shahana Hanif, aka Shahana from BK, is the first Muslim woman elected to the New York City Council and the first woman council member for New York City's 39th District. An activist from a young age, Shahana has dedicated her entire life to standing up for herself and others around her. From leading the kids on her block to leading an entire city district, Shahana's always been ready to speak up for change and progress. Today, we're talking about just how life-changing it can be to have someone who really understands your community's needs in a position of power. Shahana is tackling it all, from chronic illness advocacy to getting an entire district to turn out to vote and the lifelong responsibility of eldest daughter syndrome. I hope you enjoy this episode. Council member Hanif, thank you so much for joining us today and congratulations on your amazing win. Thank you so much. I'm super excited for our conversation. Yes, I'm very thrilled that the BGG community gets to meet you and know more about you. Let's just dive into it by talking a little bit about your journey. You speak so much about how being an immigrant has impacted you, your life as a woman, living in New York. Tell us a little bit about how all of that led you to get politically and civically engaged. Yeah, that's a really wonderful question and just demonstrates how critical my journey has been in helping to shape my run for office. I didn't start off by determining that I was going to run for office. The journey absolutely started by recognizing my home, my community. And that for me is Kensington. It is also known as Little Bangladesh. It is where I recognized just how hardworking my family and other Bangladeshi Muslim immigrants, working class predominantly are, and their fight for a dignified life, for workplace protections, for access to home ownership, for tenants' rights. And then For those of us who are girls growing up here, I also understood the patriarchy and the deep-rooted sexism. Mm -hmm. And so all of those realizations for me were the early catalysts. And it wasn't until my diagnosis with lupus at 17 that really served as the anchor, as the starting point to a journey almost 15 years ago that then brought me to my run eventually. So I like to talk about my run as coming at the tail end of over 15 years of activism within the disability rights community, within the gender equity spaces and feminist movement leadership spaces, to then working in public service in my predecessor, former council member Brad Lander's office, to this point. So my journey did not begin with being like, one day I'm going to be council member or one day I'm going to be an elected official, but rather honing into my story and how my neighborhood was and what we lacked in the neighborhood 
the needs of girls and women, and particularly Black and Brown immigrant women, and my struggles and survival navigating the healthcare system in this city. And so I'm really proud of the journey, and I'm really proud that mine is a personal story. And I think elected officials and those who govern, those who legislate and make decisions about policies that impact everyday people's lives ought to have the experiences of everyday people. And so I'm really humbled that the people of the 39th district in Brooklyn, which of course includes more than just Kensington, Park Slope, Carroll Gardens, Cobble Hill, Gowanus, Windsor Terrace, Borough Park, the Columbia Waterfront, these folks came around to electing the first woman to represent this district and our city's first Muslim woman and South Asian woman, which is incredible. It is. It's why we have you on, because you are a trailblazer in all the ways. And you mentioned, you're like, I didn't just wake up and like say, I'm going to be a council member. We know it's a journey and we can point to a really cool moment in that journey when at 10 years old, you wrote a letter to then President George Bush after the 9-11 attacks about the anti-Muslim sentiment that was happening. So even though in your community, as you mentioned, there was the sexism, the racism, the patriarchy, you know, still as a young Muslim woman, you felt the need to speak out. So can you tell us a little bit about what it was like during that time, what you were experiencing as a young Muslim girl that made you say, I'm gonna write, to the president of the United States to talk about this. And what also kept you motivated during that time? Because I remember it so clearly, and I know what so many of my Muslim friends went through, and even some of my friends who weren't Muslim, but just because they were brown-skinned, started to get some of that hate. 9-11 and the post-9-11 waves of Islamophobia, family separation, deportations, surveillance and racial profiling, and all of the operations and the mechanics of the ways in which the police department and other carceral institutions really doubled down on the Muslim community was very much visible to me as a 10-year-old. And of course, at that time, I wouldn't have been able to articulate that what was happening was that our country, our government across city, state, and federal were on a mission to remove Muslims, to depict Muslims as terrorists. And we can make parallels to how our Asian siblings are being treated right now through this global pandemic. And so we saw an increase of hate crimes and discrimination. And as a young person, who was just developing, right? I'm a, I'm a tiny person in a 10-year-old's <laughs> body mm-hmm. and walking down the street to the mosque just a half a block away where my sister Sabia and I were doing our Quran classes every weekend. And on our way, a car had basically, as they were driving, rolled down their window and screamed out terrorists. Mm-hmm. My sister is nine, I'm 10. We hear that. And for me, it impacted me in a way where all they're seeing are two tiny girls Mm -hmm. walking down the street in hijab and somehow 
are characterizing us as terrorists. Mm-hmm. Are they not thinking how that might impact us in the long run? Mm-hmm. And are they not thinking about what that word might mean to us? It was a scary time. It was a scary time to recognize my Muslim identity. It was a scary time in understanding what it means to be in this city and have that happen to us in broad daylight. I responded by way of wanting safety for all kids my age, all the brown kids. This is a block that is all brown kids. So I had leaned on an older cousin and brought together a bunch of the kids on the block and we drafted a letter together to call on the president. I mean, we really didn't know who else to call on. I mean, this is a time 20 years ago when there were very, very few organizations doing work that was around organizing South Asians and Muslims. Mm-hmm. And, and then our schools also did not respond in a way that was nurturing and compassionate. And one of the things I've been calling on as a council member in the wake of anti-Asian violence among Asian students in schools is the need for culturally responsive curriculum and for all of us to be able to learn about each other's histories and the neighborhoods we live in. And so we wrote the letter, we got our cousin to send it to the White House, and we never heard back from the president. And it was just a reminder that the work is going to fall on us. And so I think from the very beginning, my intentions were, if they're not protecting us, we got to protect ourselves. Mm -hmm. And what is that going to take? You know, I'm the older sister of three. I'm the eldest of three. And, you know, I think I've always had this responsibility of like being like the one to step up and like kind of guide the message for us or this is not right. Like, what are we going to do about it? And building consensus. And also on the block, I was like the older kid. And so folks looked to me as like, okay, what do we got to do right now, Shahana? We really set out to help shape this community to be one that recognizes this state's carceral system and the ways in which Muslims have been harmed by the city, by our government, and that we've got to really look for ways in which we invest in our communities and call on our elected officials for better policies that protect us, that recognize us as valuable neighbors to the city and work with us to really ensure the safety of these communities and hand in hand continue to organize. So I'm proud of the ways in which our Muslim communities have stepped up into organizing against the bloated police department's budget, doing everything in our power to protect families who've been impacted by deportations. And then our allies. I mean, my Black siblings, Latinx communities, so many folks have been a part of this coalition to respond and vice versa. And I think that is such a powerful testament to where we are right now and how I see myself as a legislator, that we can't legislate everything. We can't put a monetary amount to everything, but we can organize and we must build communities to protect one another. I definitely resonated with that eldest daughter syndrome. As I like to call it. So I'm like, not, I'm like, yep, yep. That's how we are. It's what we do. But we also take pride in it. 
So when I see, you know, the jokes on Twitter, it's like, are you really type A or are you just the eldest daughter? I'm like, I'm really just. <laughs> I really appreciated the jokes on Twitter about the eldest daughters like needing to get paid for their labor. We do. Because like the struggle is real. That's right. It so is. And you also talked about your diagnosis with lupus and having to navigate the healthcare system. I feel I can totally relate. I suffer from sickle cell and the healthcare system just, oh my gosh, especially when you're black and brown and then add on being a woman. Right. And just all the myths about our bodies and how we're different. And going back to Twitter, there was a tweet that went viral where a young black woman in San Francisco was looking for a new dentist because the dentist who was her age younger said that he would never pull the teeth of black people because they have extra bones and it's too much work. And it's just like, what? But how has your struggles with the healthcare system also influence the work that you do when how you lead now when you're looking at issues around healthcare. Absolutely. And first, I just want to thank you for your courage and just telling me about your own struggles with chronic illness. The anecdote you just shared about medical racism, it is just too frequent. It's what prevents especially black and brown women from receiving care. Yeah. That is a huge barrier to care. And so for me, the journey with lupus has been a long one and a painful one. I don't want to glamorize surviving lupus. I don't want to glamorize navigating our city's nebulous healthcare system and the sort of cultural stigmas of having an illness, a chronic disease, one that's degenerative, and the relationship to work, the relationship to being in school and navigating all of these other facets of our lives, right? And one example I'll give that has been current for me is that I needed to get my left hip replaced again. Over the course of my lupus journey, I've had both of my hips fully replaced. I've had my left shoulder replaced and just a lot of surgical interventions because of how devastating this illness is. And it's not all visible to the everyday person. So I've been under the knife, and then at the start of my term, after the first week of January, my left hip began to squeak. And so I'm hearing the squeaking sound. Everybody around me is hearing the squeaking sound. I immediately rush to the emergency room to figure out what's happening. Did I dislocate my replaced hip? Is something wrong with the hardware? And they basically determined that the surgery I had gotten done 12 years ago, the hardware had been wearing off and I need to get it replaced again. And so on February 23rd, I went under the knife again, did a, another left hip replacement, and I've been in recovery. So right now I've been taking all my meetings from home. I've been very strong around my boundaries because people are still inviting me to their events and to outdoor gatherings with a lot of people. And I'm like, I'm learning how to walk again. Mm. I am a legislator who is living with lupus. Like that is not an understatement. I'm living with lupus and I'm living with the harsh parts of lupus, which requires me to be very vocal. In our democratic conference, we were talking about how the open meetings law will expire, which will mean that I've got to go back into city hall, that there won't be any remote 
meeting option. And so I spoke out against it. I was like, for someone like me who has been in recovery over the last four weeks, I need to continue working through the Zoom option. The telework option is one that's essential for workers like me. It doesn't mean that I don't want to work. It just means that access looks like this for me, that I'm working my best under these circumstances. And so one of the biggest parts of my job will continue to be to speak out in favor of workers and workplace accommodations and access that make it easier for folks with disabilities to continue working with these options. And COVID has really shown us folks with disabilities have been fighting for telework for eons. My journey has really taught me how to talk about my experience in the framework of how we legislate. And I want my colleagues to know what I'm going through Mm -hmm. so that we're better. We need people with these health issues to be able to help shape how we look at work and how we look at access, not simply at work, but everywhere. But of course, like the healthcare system here is grueling. We've got to work to get health insurance. Like that Mm -hmm. is just an unfair battle. I have been hustling over the last 15 years because I know that I need health insurance or I have to do a GoFundMe, which I've done in the past to pay off medical debt. More broadly, I've been in support of a a universal health care, single payer health insurance policy so that we're all covered. And so there's work to be done to ensure that like everybody's got the care that they need, but also making it so that our hospitals, our healthcare centers are community rooted and ensuring care for everybody, no matter who is walking into those doors, that we are patient centered, not using some sort of power over patients to say like, I'm not going to do that. And so there's a lot of fight ahead to disrupt and dismantle the medical racism One of the biggest issues that this council is committed to solving and addressing proactively is Black maternal mortality. We want to make sure that no more Black women are dying while giving birth. Mm -hmm. Hospitals with adequate access, doula services, and so much more for Black women is one of the key priorities that I have, along with the majority women who are in the council in this cohort. In what you just said right there, listeners, a majority woman city council, like these are game changers across the country, because that is how you get what a council member is talking about. When you have people with your lived experiences who are in the positions of power to talk about telework, to talk about paid family leave, to talk about changing PTO policies. We really see those happen when we have women, especially women of color, in those roles. What I'm saying is pay attention to your city councils, your county commissions, because it makes a huge difference, not only for you as a constituent, but also for the people that work there as well. Thank you for all of the work that you and your fellow women are doing. It's just, it's so exciting to see. Thank you. Thank you. Now, a quick word from our sponsors. The sun is shining, the birds are singing, and the flowers are blooming. A new season is here. And we're not just talking about spring. For many voters across the country, it's also election season. This time of year presents new opportunities. And this includes the opportunity to choose leaders who hear and value all of our voices and our votes. 
That's why Fair Fight Action is doubling down on their work to protect our freedom to vote ahead of the 2022 elections. Because with COVID-19 recovery, climate change, reproductive justice, racial justice, and so much more on the line, it's critical we show up and show out once again. So before you head to the beach or your favorite concert in the park, visit StopJimCrow2.com today to learn how you can help fight back against aggressive anti-voter efforts in your state and across the country during this important election year. With the midterms quickly approaching, we have important roles as citizens to stay informed, to be engaged, and of course, to ultimately vote. With so many different races each election cycle, it can be hard to keep tabs on candidates we like and the races that will be close. Our sponsor, Act Blue, makes this process easier for everyone. When you go to actblue.com directory, you'll find a list of candidates and causes to give to. The directory feature provides an in-depth look at groups and people you can help support to make a difference. Blue is unique because its tools help break down barriers of entry for both candidates and contributors. They level the playing field by helping more people run for office. No campaign is too big or small, and everyone has a chance to get involved. The midterms will be underway before we know it. So get involved today. Go to appblue.com slash directory to find candidates and causes that resonate with you. And remember, you can find AppBlue on Instagram at AppBlueOrg and on Twitter and Facebook at AppBlue to keep up with the latest in grassroots fundraising. And we're back to more of my conversation with Shahana Hanif. Let's dive in a little bit more about your race. What were some of the challenges you encountered that you didn't expect and made you go, oh my gosh, this is what women have to deal with. This is what brown women have to deal with. This is what Muslim women have to deal with. Like what were some of your WTF moments? I'll be honest. I went in knowing that this was going to be very challenging. I mean, just from the sheer lack of women in the city council. I mean, when I decided to run, there were about 10 or 11 women council members out of the 51 council body. (laughs) It should shock people to hear this because it meant that women, the 10 women needed to take on a lot more to ensure that women's voices were in every single issue area. And so to now have a council with over 30 women is just a testament to the wave we've seen in helping to expand our democracy, to make it one that's more representative. And just what we've seen by the impacts of COVID, women bore the brunt, black and brown women Mm -hmm. bore the brunt of COVID. I knew what I walked into. And as a result of knowing, I came out very early. So I had been on my campaign journey for almost three years, which is really unheard of. But I knew that in my district, because it has some of the highest voter turnout, some of the highest fundraising numbers, it is a much more affluent district, affluent and white than working class 
there are sections of the district that are working class, but we know that working class communities have been disempowered in the electoral process, right? So I knew exactly what I was walking into. And given that both of my predecessors are white men from Park Slope, I needed to do my due diligence to build relationships with voters across the diversity and vastness in my district. And so I knew that there was going to be rampant sexism because I'm young. I was the only woman of color in my race. And that was what I was coming across. And as a result of that, I was always overprepared. I studied every issue Mm -hmm. twice Mm -hmm. as hard. Every debate or meetings we were having, I did prep sessions with my team. So for every single thing I was preparing, I was over-preparing. And it showed, like I was the most prepared candidate on the trail. And I really focused on my skills of mobilizing young volunteers, bringing in South Asian and Muslim femmes into the fold of the electoral process who were really inspired by our vision for an anti-racist feminist government, that we can transform how legislators govern, that we need a feminist lens to governance and to policymaking, that like for so long, legislation has not been gender responsive. And as a result, women are bearing the brunt of that by not having adequate housing access for folks who are domestic violence survivors. We do not have permanent affordable housing for them as a pathway. We have shelters and we're warehousing DV survivors into shelters. And so that is a direct result of not having gender responsive policies. And so we were able to really delve into this vision that spoke to so many women. We mobilized 1,200 volunteers, on the campaign. So it was like a literally like a congressional race that we were running. And among that 90, over 90% were women across the board in my district. And so we ran with it. Any challenge that came up, I reflected and I spoke to folks to think about the ways in which I can come ahead. I can be, you know, two steps, 10 steps ahead. That's the way I do work. I'm a little bit, you know, calm and collected and it shows. I really, you know, reflected on my own skills to win. I was just sharing with somebody who had asked me, like, did you think you were going to win? And like, you know, when I think back, I'm like, yeah, with everything I poured into this race, every single day that I poured into this race, I knew I was going to come out. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I'm just like, I manifested this. Right. I worked hard. I had discipline. I had a core group of folks who were my mentors and people who like trusted me and trusted my vision, who I was able to really process conversations with and issues with. This was a community effort to see so many of my aunties go door to door. I mean, for the folks who we knew were low voter turnout community members, I put in a lot of thinking into how do we do this? And we had our group of mostly CUNY South Asian students from the Kensington area and my mother and her friends going door to door, reaching women their age to bring out families. We really focus on women bringing out our communities for democracy. That message will stay with me forever. When Other young women ask me like how they should run for office or what to do about it. I'm just like, you got to build relationships and you got to trust that women will bring out the votes. Oh, yeah. What work are you putting in to build with other women and like to build out a sisterhood for the project of democracy? And so for me, it was such a fun experience. But of course, like one that was so rigorous. This is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. 
I would never work so hard for a job. Um, but this is a, a commitment to my city. This is a commitment to the neighborhood that raised me, to all the aunties and women who had my back no matter what, even if we were in conflict. I mean, I love that I get to be council member in this time when our people need to see compassion from their leaders, when our mm -hmm. people need to see a hope that things will be better for us. That was so beautiful. And I want to dive into one last question before we close out the interview. Share with the BGG community one of your key lessons learned. I would say you got to have fun. Mm, I like that. What you do should be bringing tremendous joy. And that is my core message that like anything I'm getting involved in or manifesting is because I know that this is joyful for me and a magnet to bring in others for our collective joy. So have fun. The work is hard. And those of us who are in these sectors where we're seeing a lot of pain and despair or hopelessness, it is really easy to feel those feelings that like, I have no clue what this means for me or like this feels like it'll never go away. But we've really got to orient ourselves to what Mariam Akaba has said, you know, hope is a discipline. And every single day we've got to practice assuring ourselves that we are here with a purpose and we've got to practice that purpose and think about our lives as just pockets of opportunities for joy. And so that's my mindset, which is how I keep going every single day. I wake up every single day excited for days that are hard and long. It's not an easy one to wake up every day and feel like, great, I'm like hopeful for, <laughs> for the day's work. It takes tremendous practice. It takes a good core and foundation. And so I just encourage folks to really look inwards and get to know yourself and have a good crew of people around you. I love it. Council member Hanif, thank you so much for joining us today. And I know we all look forward to seeing all the amazing things you're going to continue to accomplish. Thank you so much, Ashanti and the team here. Really, really appreciate your work and keep on bringing this this incredible energy to our communities. Thank you. Thank you. You need a crew, period. The fact is, no matter what industry you are in, you need people around you who care about and support you. At times, we want to be superwoman and try to do it all. And the reality is that we can't. And it's also not good for our emotional, mental, and physical health. For candidates especially, one of my main pieces of advice is to put together your kitchen cabinet. Those who will be there for you on the good days and the bad days, the highs and the lows, and for the wins and the losses. You need people who will actually have your back regardless of the outcome on election day. So in conclusion, while running for office can be lonely at times, having a good network of support is key to ensuring that you're able to tackle all of the battles that will come your way. Thank you so much to all of our listeners. Please take time to rate and review wherever you listen to your podcast. For more information on the Brown Girls Guide to Politics, you can check us out at www.thebgguide.com and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The BG Guide. 
The Brown Girls Guide to Politics podcast is produced by Wonder Media Network. You can find them at wondermedianetwork.com. Next episode is our season finale, fam. I'm so excited to round out this season with my good friend, the first woman of color to lead NARAL Pro-Choice America, Minnie Timaraju. Until next time, Brown Girls. Hey, BGG fam. We have another podcast we think you would like from a fellow Brown Girl. If you want to learn how you can fix this broken world, check out Art of Power, a new kind of leadership podcast from WBEZ Chicago. Each week, award-winning journalist and best-selling author, Arthi Shahani, interviews fascinating people from all walks of life who've turned their passion into real-world impact. She focuses on outsiders, like herself, people who are excluded, who were told that they don't belong, but who broke through anyway. Her guests are household names, like President Barack Obama, and names you don't know, but should, like Gabby Pacheco, the dream activist who cornered Obama into action. No question is off limits. Arthi takes you through intimate and unexpected conversations. That's her superpower. What's yours? Listen to Art of Power today, wherever you get your podcast. Hey, Brown Girls. I want to tell you about a podcast I think you'll love. It's called Well-Read Black Girl, and it's the literary kickback you never knew you needed. Author and founder of the Well-Read Black Girl Book Club, Glory Edom, sits down with some of our favorite authors of color for close conversations on art, culture, and the power of the written word. Luminaries like Tarana Burke, Gabrielle Union, Anita Hill, and more discuss how they found their voice, honed their skill, and composed some of the most interesting and impactful writing of the day. You'll meet Black bookstore owners, literacy advocates, and members of the Well-Read Black Girl Book Club who pay homage to the literary legacies of the women who paved the way. Whether you're an aspiring writer, a total bookworm like me, or just want to peek behind the page of the brightest minds around you, this show is for you. Listen to Well-Read Black Girl wherever you get your podcasts.